الجزيرة بودكاست The world's leading climate scientists have issued a stark warning. Devastating extreme weather events will only get worse unless the world acts now to secure a livable future. That's the message in the UN Survival Guide for Humanity report. It aims to shape climate policy in the years to come. But has the world body been successful in helping mitigate climate catastrophe? I'm Nick Clark, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. For more on this, I'm joined by our guests in Dhaka. We have Salomo Hook, who's director of international at the International Center for Climate Change and Development. In Oxford is Doug Parr, Greenpeace's chief scientist. His work focuses on climate change and transitioning from fossil fuels. And in Nairobi, we have Maurice Onyango, who's regional head of disaster risk management at Plan International. Gentlemen, a welcome, warm welcome to you all. Uh, Salomo, if I could start with you. So the bottom line is outlook is bleak and less we act fast. It is literally now or never. Is that it? Well, it's actually never and now right. because we have already entered what I call the era of losses and damages from climate change impacts. They're happening as we speak. As right now, Malawi has already lost 400 people from Hurricane Freddy that hit it twice. That's climate change already happening. So it's happening. On the other hand, we can still prevent the really, really, really bad stuff from happening in the long term if we reduce our emissions rapidly as we have been told to do by the IPCC. So we haven't got out of the woods yet. We are still in the thick of it. Indeed. Uh, so Maurice, almost every day we're reporting on climate catastrophes, catastrophes from somewhere in the world. Uh, and of course, it's those who did not contribute to the problem who are the hardest hit. And that particularly applies to nations in Africa. Yes, uh, you are right. In fact, Africa is the least polluter, uh, yet it bears the largest impacts in terms of climate change. Uh, and as you have rightly put it, uh, as we speak now in, the, uh, in Kenya, in Ethiopia and in Somalia, we are facing the worst drought in 40 years. And uh, this is something that is really driven by the, the impacts of climate change. We have seen the frequency and um, severity of droughts really, really getting uh, worse over the years. Uh, in the past, we used to have these droughts every like 10 years, but increasingly they are becoming more frequent and more severe. As we speak, 22 million people across Kenya, Ethiopia and Somalia are facing serious food insecurity, which is caused by drought. And 5.1 million children are malnourished as a result. And as my other guest speaker has spoken there, in Southern Africa, uh, the, the cyclones are also becoming more severe and more intense. The recent one, which is Cyclone Freddy, has just hit Mozambique twice. Mm. And, and over 400 people dead uh, in that location. So it's getting serious. Indeed. And let's cross to the UK, to Oxford, Doug Parr. When the report says that we're approaching irreversible levels of global heating, if we let that happen, what does that actually mean? Well, it means that the the sort of impacts that uh, our colleagues on the panel have just been outlining become baked in, and you, mm. there's not really much you can do about them. Um, already, we're at a point where, frankly, on a human on a human time scale, the sort of things that we're seeing across the world um, are are going to continue to happen, and they're going to continue to get worse. Um, the question is whether how fast we bring down carbon emissions, uh, in particular. 
so that they don't continue to get worse and that they might even start to uh, start to drop, but we're a very long way, sorry, that, it, that the, the, the levels in the atmosphere might start to drop. We are a very, very long way from that because at the moment we're still going up and we're going up at a, at a very dangerous rate. And Doug, when we, you know, this target of one and a half degrees Celsius, it's not arbitrary, is it? And now they're saying that we could be hitting it uh, by 2030 to 2035. How serious would that be? Well, it would be serious, and I mean, I think, I think the 1.5 target, it's a, it, yes, it's a political target, but it is based on the scientific issues that arise from a recognition that the risks to um, human and natural systems increase rapidly after uh, after you go above 1.5. So at 1.6, 1.7, they get worse and worse. And we're already seeing, you know, quite bad impacts, as, as has been outlined already at the levels that we're currently seeing. It's going to get worse because 1.5 will be worse than about 1.1, which is about where we are. And then 1.8, if we ever got to that, would be worse than 1.5. And that's why I'm a lot worse. And the risks of irreversible things that really are irreversible, like the melting of the Greenland ice cap, uh, the collapse of the Antarctic ice shelves and all the sea level rise that uh, that, that implies, I mean, these become more likely once you get above the 1.5 limit. Uh, Salomon Hook, uh, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, he's now urged countries to commit to net zero by the earlier date of around 2040. We were originally aiming for 2050. Given what you said at the beginning and what you've seen and what we've heard so far, is that even remotely possible? It's absolutely possible. What we lack most of all is the political will by the, by the big emitters, by the polluted, polluting countries. Uh, if they decide to do it, and they can decide to do it, then it can be done. Uh, the problem is that they promise to do it, but they don't keep their promise. And this lack of political will, Marisa, it must make you very angry, doesn't it, when it's, it's mostly coming from developed nations who can, can spur the kind of change that we need? It, it, is a, it is a huge challenge, as, as you're mentioning. It's a huge, huge challenge. In fact, uh, from where I see it, in terms of responding to the disasters, Plan International, for example, if I just give you the statistics in terms of even the impacts on girls and women and children, we are seeing huge numbers of dropouts of, of children because of uh, disasters. In, in fact, in the Horn of Africa, where we are having the current drought, uh, the numbers are just staggering. Um, and most of the girls are even being forced into marriage as we speak because families cannot afford food for, the, for, the, for their households. So they are marrying off their girls so that they can get food to feed their families. And, and it is really sad when, we, when you see such a situation in, on the ground. And my, my plea would just be that uh, we invest, the global community invest in, in addressing the impacts of climate change so that we don't see these impacts that we are seeing where girls are, we are losing girls, a, a whole generation of girls and children because of the impacts of climate change, because of droughts, because of cyclones. So this is something that I think we need to have a, a rededication in terms of international support. And Salomon, it's a similar story in Bangladesh, isn't it, in, in your region of the world? Absolutely. Bangladesh is one of the most vulnerable countries to the impacts of climate change. In our case, it isn't so much droughts as we heard about from Maurice. It's more floods from the major rivers and also cyclones that hit us from the Bay of Bengal. And so we are extremely vulnerable. But having said that, Bangladesh is also one of the most resilient countries. We have one of the best adaptation 
programs in the world and our people are quite resilient. So, you know, countries can do better to prepare themselves, but ultimately the impacts are still going to happen. So, Doug Parr, uh, we've, have we not heard this message before? Many times, you know, last chance saloon, code red, Antonio Guterres said, we need to act time and time again. And the world has not acted as it must. And here's yet another message that we must act. Do you have any faith in the process? Well, there are two things that um, give me some optimism about uh, where we might go. Firstly, as the report has been at pains to outline, um, the, there isn't even an objection around cost now to delivering the kind of transition that we need. Renewables are cheaper than fossil fuels in most countries around the world, if not all of them at the, at the moment with inflated fossil fuel prices. We know that the, um, the, the technology of electrification of vehicles and, uh, and saving energy in buildings, you know, these are cost effective things that already make sense economically. And so, the argument about cost being a barrier is nothing like as strong as it used to be. And the second thing is, unfortunately, that we are now starting to see real impacts in real time. Mm -hmm. China had a massive drought last year. Europe had a massive drought last year. Um, you know, we're seeing um, extreme weather events happening in Latin America, in North America in all sorts of places around the world, the idea that climate change is some kind of theoretical thing for our kids to sort out is just not tenable anymore. And as uh, Maurice and Salim have outlined, it's happening now. It's happening to us in real time. And I hope that this can inject some kind of urgency into the kind of changes that, as I've outlined, are now cost effective for developed countries to be making and to start uh, contributing to the kind of capacity building that is needed in in developing countries through through the existing uh, mechanism that's now been set up with um, through the uh, climate talks. So there are there are strands of hope in there, even if the situation is already now looking pretty dire. The thing is, we were warned, weren't we? I, I just want to run this very short clip from the former NASA scientist James Hansen. Uh, these are words he spoke addressing the U.S. Senate committee way back in 1988. This evidence represents a very strong case, in my opinion, that the greenhouse effect has been detected and it is changing our climate now. So, Salim, there you have it. We knew, but did not act. Absolutely. We've known for a very, very long time. Uh, and I think the reason for not acting was, firstly, the leaders thought this was something that's going to happen a long time after they, they are no longer... In, in power because their own horizons are very short term. And also, unfortunately, because the fossil fuel industry, who also knew uh, the, the, the science at that time, decided to ignore the science and just make, keep on making money by polluting the atmosphere. So they, they have a lot to answer for, uh, for having caused this problem uh, over those many years. But nevertheless, as Doug says, we can still take action right now and i hope that this will happen and i think the 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 interesting uh, feature that might get the de developed country leaders to do the actions that they know they need to do that they promised to do but they're not doing is the fact that they're hit by climate change impacts themselves you know in germany uh, a year ago they lost nearly 200 people from a flash flood that doesn't happen in places like bangladesh you know we know how to deal with floods we don't die from floods like the germans did uh, right now, California is having a, a, a snowstorm after they had a flood. 
And so, you know, California is the warmest uh, state. It's the sunshine state in the United States. And it's having both uh, snowstorms and flooding. These are things that are hitting all countries, including the developed countries. And they're going to have to do something about it. They simply cannot ignore it anymore. Uh, Maurice, Sally mentioned the oil companies there, whose profits, of course, are, are rocketing, record profits, as are emissions, as are temperatures uh, rising as well. How angry does it make you feel when, when you see that, you see those profits increasing, and yet the people in vulnerable countries, like African nations, are those that are suffering? You're, you're right there. It, it, is, it is a challenge, as I mentioned earlier. But you see, the, 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 there's a glimmer of hope, as uh, the, other, the other panelists have mentioned. There's a huge glimmer of hope. We have moved from the, uh, largely from that state of where there was doubt even about climate change. We have moved into a situation where countries are slowly, even if it's baby steps, they are already investing in greener solutions, greener energy solutions. Renewables are becoming the order of the day. Even in Kenya, in most of the other African countries, you will see a lot of solar investments in solar. There are a lot of investments in, uh, in renewables, whether it is electric cars and things like that. But at the same time, what I would really urge is the fact that the investments are not keeping uh, with the pace of climate change. So the problem is quite huge, but the investments are still quite insignificant. So we need to really focus more on the investment so that we can have a situation where we can start to avert the catastrophic effects of climate change. Yeah. So it, there's hope. There's hope. There's hope uh, indeed, Maurice, but it does depend on billions and billions of dollars of climate finance. Do you think that's likely to come towards the end of this year when we have uh, that, the big UN climate conference coming up, Maurice? I would I would really wish that it happens uh, because but you see when it comes to the political decisions those are those are quite higher up in the ladder so our 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 own uh, appeal is basically to the political leaders to to really take this as a serious commitment and invest in the in the in the funding that is necessary to help especially the poorer countries so that they can start also to invest in more large-scale greener solutions which will help us to avert the impacts of climate change in the future. Doug, I'm wondering what you think. Do you think the UN climate system is fit for purpose? We've had nearly 30 years of climate conferences. We heard James Hansen there predicting what was going to happen all those years ago. And look at where we're at now. It's just It just hasn't worked, has it? Well, I, I empathise with James Hansen. I'm, I, think, I think my first tract on climate change was 30 years ago. Um, but for, for the reasons that I've outlined, you know, it's, it's a different context now. And the thing about climate change is that, you know, I've, I've witnessed many COPs going right back to 92. And uh, yes, I completely understand why people are saying this, this, is, this isn't working, this isn't fit for purpose. But um, the thing is, it's a global problem. And nations need to be held account in a forum that's dedicated to climate change so that other countries can push the big polluters on what they're doing. So if you scrapped the UN climate change process, you would very rapidly find you've got to reinvent something that looks very much like it. Because otherwise, you know, nations will just go off and do what they want and they're not held to account by other nations around the table. So... Uh, yeah, I can sh I can understand the frustrations uh, because I found myself deeply frustrated by it too. 
The process is slow. We look for leadership coming from elsewhere, but we have now got some kind of naming of some of the, of the fossil fuels like coal. We've got potentially a loss and damage fund uh, that can address some of the climate injustices that we've been, we've been hearing about. So there are things that can happen through this process that it's inconceivable that they would happen otherwise. Yeah, Salim, what do you think about the press? The problem was that the, the last COP, the last climate conference uh, in Cairo, we, in, sorry, in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, we had no end of fossil fuel lobbyists there. And indeed, at the next one, there's going to be a, one of the, uh, the president of COP is going to be you know, the CEO <laughs> of, the, of the Dubai's of, of UAE's oil company. Yes, well, um, I'm, I'm with Doug on this. You know, I've, I'm one of the few people who's been to all 27 COPs. So, you know, I, I have uh, invested a lot of my own time and effort in this process. And the reason why I've done that, despite the frustrations, as, as Doug says, it's the only place where you can have a global problem being addressed by all the leaders of the world, and particularly the poorer, vulnerable countries like mine and like uh, Maurice's. We don't get invited to the G7 or the G20 or the Security Council. This is, the UNFCC COP is the only place where we can meet with the big guys and tell them what we need them to do and hold them to account. And we try and do that. And in COP27, you'll remember, we actually got something which we'd been asking for some time, a loss and damage fund. And we've all agreed to do that. We don't have any money in it yet. We're not going to have to put money in it. And for putting the money in, we're going to have to make the fossil fuel companies uh, let go of some of their exorbitant uh, profits that they're making, put a tax on them and put them into a loss and damage fund. If we can generate the political will to do it, it can happen. The thing is, Selim, we have this kind of doublespeak, don't we, from, certainly from the US President Joe Biden, who on the one hand is talking up climate action, and in the next moment he's signing off on oil exploration in Alaska. Unfortunately, yes. You know, the, the oil industry is extremely powerful and they, they lobby much harder and better than we, the poorer developing countries who are suffering the impacts. They don't care. They just want to make profits. And really, the, we've been allowing them to do that for too long. We shouldn't allow it anymore. No. Uh, Maurice, it's all about climate justice in the end, isn't it? How important is the issue of climate justice, do you think, in the whole transition? It is, it is extremely, extremely important because, as I was mentioning earlier, the, the countries that are polluting the least are the ones having the, 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 the worst impacts. So uh, climate justice is a critical, critical component, and we really need to come up with measures to make sure that uh, uh, we, we, we have the, like the loss and damage um, that uh, my colleague has mentioned there, that is a critical step that we have now made uh, a reality. We have been talking about it for a long time, but it's now a reality. So the key thing is how do we invest uh, in it and in other measures that can help the, the, the poorer countries also to get justice in terms of the impacts that they are facing. But the thing is, Maurice, you say it's, it's a reality, but it's only a reality in, in terminology, isn't it? I mean, it's there. But it, the funds aren't, are they? No, why I'm saying is a, is a reality is that we never had that mechanism before. So right. we already now have something. At least we have something. That is a movement. That is progress. So we, we need to also just appreciate the fact that at least we have that in, in, in place now. Uh, the key thing is continue lobbying so that funds can go into it to start really driving the changes that we want in terms of climate change mitigation and adaptation and all that. Doug Park, let's talk more about progress. Where are we at with renewable energy? How well poised are countries with that? 
Well, uh, I think a, a recent analysis, by recent, it was 18 months ago, so it's probably out of date now in some ways, but that said that already in 87% of countries, um, either wind or solar would be cheaper than the fossil fuel equivalent. Um, in some countries, we are now finding that the that solar in particular um, can be cheaper than the running costs of fossil fuel plants. So never mind the, the construction costs and all the development, but actually the running cost is cheaper to have solar than to just run a gas plant or a coal plant. So if those things are able to go ahead and they get planning and connection, then they will undercut um, the, uh, the existing fossil fuel plant and damage their financial viability. And I think that is, um, yeah, that's where we are at the moment. I think there are, of course, forces that would be very pleased for that transition not to happen. And they do fight back and they do push against it and things can be slower than they should be. But on an economic basis, there's no reason why we shouldn't see very large transitions to uh, to renewables quite soon. But, you know, every step of the way you tend to find is a fight with um, where communities need to get on the back of the politicians who are making decisions to, to sort of make a positive case for saying, yes, we want things that will actually make a difference in the climate transition, that we want our own renewable energy. This is the right way to go. It, it doesn't just happen automatically just because it's um, economically and um, environmentally sensible. Selim, what do you think? Do you think this, the current fossil fuel boom will be short-lived? I think so. I think the, the writing is already on the wall, as Doug has said, that the fossil fuel companies without subsidies or without bullying and buying politicians are really don't have an economic case anymore. I'll give you the example here in Bangladesh where I am. You know, in Bangladesh, we have more than six million households who have uh, solar home systems. They have a panel on the roof which charges a battery and provides them with lighting in the evening. And the quality of life improvement by that is very, very significant. About 20 million people in those 6 million households now have a much better life than they used to have before. Now, in megawatt terms, that's not a big, huge amount of megawatts of electricity, but in quality of life terms, it's a huge improvement and it's expanding very, very rapidly. And that's the way we need to go. Uh, Maurice, what are your thoughts about you know, the fact that developing nations, they want to develop, they want lives to improve, they want to come out of poverty? Uh, and yet, at the same time, they're being asked to make this transition, which is, you know, comes at a great cost. And they certainly need help from the outside, but it's, it also causes issues from within. What do you think about that? Uh, I think we, we, we are in a, a connected world. We are in, in this world together. That, 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 for me, is the most important thing. It's not about um, uh, others wanting to invest and others not wanting to invest. We are in this world together. Climate change, as we have mentioned, is going to impact everybody. Even if it doesn't do it now, it is going to impact even the richer countries. So if we invest in, in new technologies together, new renewables together, and make sure that they are accessible to the poorer parts of the world, that will all help us eventually into the, the, the future that we want. So I would not really say that uh, uh, we should not invest because we are having other developmental uh, challenges at home. Let us focus our energies and make sure that we can have a, a world that is better for all of us, a world that is safer, a world that is cleaner, 
a world that is better for all of our children and grandchildren. I think that is the message that we need to focus on. And that includes technologies, transferring those technologies also to the, uh, the poorer countries, whether it is on, on, uh, on, in, on, on greener energy, whether it is on batteries, whether it is on solar, Let's make sure that we invest and transfer that technology so that we can move together and have a better world in terms of climate change. Doug, as we come towards the end of this program, what are your thoughts about why humanity is failing on this or has failed on this so far? I mean, if there was a meteorite hurtling towards Earth, likely to do what uh, climate change is projected to do, we'd be all over it, sorting it out, wouldn't we? Why, why are we not doing that with this? Vested interest. I mean, there's the the, the 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 fossil fuel industry in pretty much all countries is a huge barrier to change because it's going to undermine uh, their future profitability. And in the international fora like the UN climate talks, it's the countries who are fossil fuel based economies who are the most obstructive. So in the end, um, if we were able to escape from that, and as you say, be, the, be the, the kind of alien looking down and say, what's the best thing for the planet as a whole, for human societies, for, um, for, for nature, what's the best thing? Then you would say, well, make this transition as fast as possible. And it won't even cost you too much. And you'll get all sorts of benefits like um, cleaner air, uh, better cities and so on. And so you wouldn't, there wouldn't really be much of a discussion about it. It'd just be happening. So the only thing that's stowing it down is the the existing interests and the existing way in which we've set up our societies to be fossil fuel dependent. And it needs enlightened public interest authorities, elected authorities in very instances, to make that change and to overcome the barriers that the interests stop from happening. And that's kind of it, really. Indeed, well said. Guests, thank you so much indeed for joining us. So we'll have to leave it there. An important story, no doubt. Salomon Hook, Doug Parr and Maurice Onyango, thanks so much. This episode was produced by Shantanu Chatterjee, Fung Gingwin, Abdur Rehman Selik and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Hasi Pashbi and the programme was edited by Hussam Shabatsi Lin Gwyn and Joe DeFres. Be sure now to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening. Tune in on Tuesday for our next episode. This week on The Take, a look at the toxic legacy the U.S. military left behind in Iraq. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.